Ephesians 3.13. It's the last verse of our passage this morning. So we're going to read it and then go back to the beginning. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Don't lose heart. The, the reverse of that is take heart. Take heart. Be encouraged. Be strengthened. Don't collapse under the weight of your own concerns. Take heart, Paul says. Oh, yeah, why would he say this? Why would he encourage the people of this church in the city of Ephesus to take heart? Don't lose heart. Well, the fact is, Paul found himself in jail. And he was suffering in prison. And the reason he was in prison was because he had been sharing the good news that Jesus saved sinners to people all over the world, mostly those who weren't Jews, Gentiles. As a result, the religious authorities, in partnership with the political authorities, made sure that he was in jail. The Christians in Ephesus, of the church in Ephesus, were discouraged by this. The guy who told them about Jesus was in jail because he told them about Jesus. It was bumming them out. A couple of reasons that would bum them out. Well, they liked him. He was okay. Not the best-looking guy. By his own admission, I'm not just being mean. But, you know, they liked the guy. But what was the other concern they had? Well, Paul goes on and on about telling them to tell others about Jesus. And, well, are they going to end up in jail too? Probably. So Paul says, take heart. Be encouraged. Don't get down. I want to, I want to tell you to, to stay strong. And don't let your heart fail within you. And we have to understand something about the Apostle Paul and the way the Bible works, though. He doesn't just merely say, take heart. He didn't run down to Walmart and buy a take heart greeting card and write on the bottom, take heart. Good luck with that. Hope it works out. He had very specific reasons he wanted them to take heart. And that's what we're going to look at. The very specific reasons why Paul wanted them to take heart. And they weren't intangible, wishful thinking. He had very clear reasons why he said, don't lose heart. In fact, you would say this, well, you have no reason to lose heart. So let's look at him. Go back to verse 8. Take heart. Verse 8. Take heart because God gives purpose. Take heart because God gives purpose. Look what the Apostle Paul said in the Bible in verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul says, I was given purpose. Take heart, because we have purpose in Christ. But he says that more than that, it's not just purpose. It's the place where his purpose is occurring. What did he say? I am the what? The very least of all the saints. What Paul is saying is, in my lowness, in my humiliation, in my brokenness, in my despicableness, Christ has given me purpose. Matt Redmond has written a song called Gracefully Broken, or Broken Gracefully, one of the two. I will give you the grace of my not singing it for you. I will read two or three lines of it. Your power and work in me, I'm broken gracefully, strong when... I'm weak, I will be free. Your power and work in me, I'm broken gracefully, 
strong when I'm weak, I will be free. See, this is the Apostle Paul. This is what he's telling us about his purpose. In his lowness, God saw fit to give him purpose. In his despicableness, in his brokenness, in his sinfulness, God said, okay, now I can give you purpose. When you go to a job interview, and if you haven't interviewed for a job any time recently, you can write some of these things down. Generally, you want to communicate to your interviewer or your prospective employer reasons why you might be successful at the job. Nobody's writing that down. That's a, I mean, that's a good tip. I hired one or two people in my time. You want them to think, this is the guy for the job. On occasion in an interview, something will come up that may seem to indicate you might not be good at that job, or maybe it would be a bit of a liability. Your job as an interviewee is to minimize that liability. Oh, it's no big deal. It happened once. I mean, and most of them survived. So you want to minimize your liability and maximize reasons why you're the chosen one, the golden child for that particular job. And Paul says, the kingdom is all upside down. It's the opposite. Purpose is given to the low, the humiliated, the despicable, the broken. What was Paul's history? He was a persecutor of the church. Before he found Christ, he would travel around arresting people who claimed the name of Christ, separating families, husbands from wives, children from parents. He would have them arrested. He would oversee their, their executions. He would ensure they were put in prison. He would make sure all the local people wouldn't hire them for work or loan them money or sell them food. This was his job, was to make everyone who claimed the name of Christ that he could find make their lives miserable or unlivable. It was in this time that Christ came to Paul and said, I've got a purpose for you. In his lowness and in his brokenness, when he was stealing the freedom from others and stealing life from others and stealing dignity from others. Do you think Paul had any regrets over his life? Do you think Paul ever woke up at night hearing the screams of people he had turned over into jail? Do you think Paul ever woke up at night remembering the tear, uh, tears of the children that had their father or mother or both removed from their homes? Do you think he ever woke up at night crying? Of course he did. He's not a robot. Paul had regrets. His life was one gigantic regret. In that, God comes and says, I have purpose. I have purpose for you. I'm going to give you purpose. Do you have any regrets that you think of? When I say the word regret, that, that one thing comes right to mind, doesn't it? It's like, man, if I knew then what I knew now, it would turn it totally different. If I knew what that would end up costing in my life, I never would have. I knew at the time it was wrong, but I didn't know it was this wrong. And some of us have even in the midst of that regret and that shame and that guilt and that we blew it so bad, we said, well, God can't use me or, well, I'm on the JV team. He couldn't really use me. Of course, he could have if I wouldn't have blown it so bad. Here's something we read about Paul as we look at verse 8. Look what the Bible says. This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles. His purpose is what? It's grace. Grace 
requires lowness. Grace requires humiliation. Grace requires brokenness. In fact, it's in the brokenness and the humiliation and the lowness that grace flourishes. That's where it explodes with life. Some of you garden and grow plants. I don't. I buy plants and kill them. I mean, not on purpose. That would sound weird. I just can't grow them. I water them. I, I don't know. They just, they see me and they give up hope. You have some plants that like warm conditions and a little bit of light, so maybe you'll make that a house plant in the corner. You have some plants that like a lot of light, and they're real, real hardy, so you'll stick that out in the yard. And you have some plants that uh, don't like a lot of water, so you can put that in a place where you can really control the water. So what you're do- trying to do is figure out what's the environment where this plant just goes nuts. It just flourishes. Where does grace flourish? Where there's brokenness and regret and where there's shame and where there's lowness and where there's humiliation. That's where grace hits a home run. Grace flourishes in the midst of all that regret and pain and shame and guilt, and that's what it's there for. Paul's purpose was not a means to obtain grace. Paul's purpose was given as grace. That yes, even you, the lowest of the low, the Isis of the first century, Paul, you've got a purpose. A purpose to proclaim the good news that Jesus saves sinners to Gentiles. And so in Paul's life, grace flourished. Paul did not flourish. Grace flourished in Paul that he got to go and preach the riches of Jesus to people who were spiritually bankrupt, just like he used to be. This is what he says about the riches of Jesus. He was given this grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, the unsearchable riches of his grace, the unsearchable riches of his mercy. When you go into the vault of heaven and it says Jesus' grace on the top, you start digging to the bottom, you will never find it. It's unsearchable. It doesn't have a bottom. And, and Paul, because of God's unsearchable riches of grace, was given a purpose to tell people about the unsearchable riches of God's grace. Perfect job for him. He'd be talking to some guy. This guy said, Paul, you have no idea what I did. There's not near enough grace for me. And Paul says, really? Challenge accepted. If there's enough grace for me, there's more than enough grace for you. See, God's purpose of grace was designed for the kind of humiliation and lowness and despicableness that were characterized of Paul. God gives purpose, and his purpose is a form of his grace. Take heart. God gives purpose. And not as a tip of the hat to your brokenness, but because of it, he goes, oh, man, I can do something big time with that person's major screw-up. And you say, no, how is that even possible? I don't know. That's how he rolls. Why are you arguing with him? He says, take heart. I'm going to give you a purpose, not in spite of you, but because of just how broken you are. And Paul says, what a joy then to tell other people the unsearchable extent of God's grace to me. How do we find our purpose in God? It's not by being super awesome. It's by being super broken. How do we find purpose in God? It's not by earning his favor and saying, God, I've finally got my act together. Can I now do something cool for you? 
No, we find purpose when he offers his grace when we don't deserve it. Which, by the way, is always, you just fool yourselves and think, fool ourselves. I'm going to throw you under the bus. I'm under the bus with you. We don't earn a God's purpose when we finally get some skills. We take a class, and now we know a little bit of the Bible or know how to share my face, so now God can use me. No, we find God's purpose when we've got nothing to offer because he's that gracious. We find God's purpose because he wants each one of us to know his unsearchable grace that we might tell others about his unsearchable grace. You can't give away what you don't own, one pastor said. And if you didn't need Christ's unsearchable grace to find purpose, you will never be that motivated to tell other people about his unsearchable grace. But if, like Paul, you said, the only way to save a dingbat like me is unsearchable grace, then in your heart, when you meet another person who needs nothing but unsearchable grace, you can say, I found all kinds of that. There's enough for both you and me. It's amazing. Yeah, you seem excited. Come on, let's get excited this morning. Thank you. All right. Take heart. God gives purpose. Now, here's the thing. Uh, we understand that the work of God is gracious. We understand he gives each one of us purpose. But I'm going to say something I don't think we're allowed to say in church. Is it really that cool? I mean, is it really that big a deal? Is it really that important? I mean, so we've known the Bible a long time. We've known God a long time. We've gone to a lot of church service. And you know what? I've got to be honest. Sometimes the, the stuff can get a little dull. You know, so is this really that big a deal? Maybe it's just Paul. He just had his engine cranked up because of it. Or maybe it was his job, so he had to be excited about it. Is the work of God's grace really that important? Well, let's look at it. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me. I'm going to read them again just to remind us of what they said. Paul said his purpose was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Take heart. God's purpose is the greatest. How do we normally evaluate whether or not something is important? Maybe the impact it has in the world around us. Well, that was a big deal because, look, it really affected a lot of different people. Maybe it's important because it's seen. It's recognized as important. Well, that was really important because it was on the news. A lot of people saw it in the news, thought it was important, so they broadcast it on the news. Well, that, that, that seems kind of important. Now, I can see some of you are a little cynical. We don't care about the news. What happens when your grandson's on the news with school? How many people you call? Every person in the phone book. Not your friends. Your... Okay, for the younger people, a phone book was a book that was produced. <laughs> had the phone numbers listed in it. Kids these days. What's important? It's seen. It's recognized. What's important? It, maybe it affects a lot of change. Something important changes in the world or the community around us. And so, well, gee, that sounds important. How do we evaluate what is important? Well, look how Paul is evaluating what is important, how the Bible tells us how things are important in God. He says this. He's going to bring to light a mystery that's been hidden for ages in God. A mystery is not something that must be solved, like we might imagine a, a mystery novel. We're not trying to figure something out. Mystery in the Bible means something which is true that God has made known gradually over time. He had a grand plan to redeem mankind from his sin 
And he's made that plan of redemption, bits and parts of it known over time, more and more and more and more. Starting in Genesis 3, working its way all the way to the cross of Christ, and he continues making it known even in us. So he's saying this mystery is this. God has a plan to redeem sinners from their sin. And he's making this plan known more and more over time. And this plan was hidden in God. Who knew about it? God and who else? God. God. you got to say it three times. Trinity. God knew about it. Nobody else knew. It was the most exclusive plan that ever existed. No one knew about it. It was only God's plan. And he only told people about it bits and pieces over time. Until it was finally fully revealed uh, in Christ. It's much like a gift that has been wrapped up at Christmas time. The gifts are wrapped up and they're put under the Christmas tree, maybe uh, early October or whenever you do that. And normally what you do is wait until Christmas time to open up. But if this present was the mystery of God, what would happen is sort of over time, the, the wrapping starts to kind of come off and be like, oh, I can see a little bit of it here and a bit of it here. And, and then all of a sudden what Paul says, here's the grace that was given to me. And to you, you, what's the grace that was given to us? He says, we get to tear the lid off and show them the whole thing. So the mystery is made known. And this mystery is the uh, greatest mystery, the greatest news that's ever been known. Because this news has been uh, hidden in God for all of eternity. That's what he says down in verse 11. We're going to just reference it real quick. Uh, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus. So God had this plan to redeem mankind from their sin for all of eternity. Okay, you're gonna have to wrap your head around it. He didn't make the plan of redemption when we, when we sinned. He's been working on it since before the creation of the world. He says, oh man, I love saving sinners. And he, he's working out this plan of redemption in the world. And, and Paul is saying, this is the great mystery. It is the greatest news that can be known. It's the greatest a piece of secret information that God has now finally said everyone needs to know about it. So if your purpose is wrapped up in God making known this mystery, your purpose is wrapped up in the greatest purpose that has ever existed on planet earth. In fact, that means your purpose is wrapped up in things that have existed since before the creation of the universe. Take heart. God's purpose is the greatest because now Paul is saying we're involved in a purpose that has been going on for as long as God has been, which is forever. There's no greater gig than being wrapped up in the purposes of God. Look with me at verse 10. The Bible tells us this, that this mystery has been hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Just a couple of things there. When he's talking about through the church, we immediately think he must be talking about the universal church, everyone who's ever believed in the name of Christ throughout all of history, and certainly he's making tip of the hat to that, a reference to that, but he more specifically is talking to the Ephesian church and the folks who, the other churches who would read this letter. What we need to understand is this, he's writing this to the local church. He's not merely saying, oh yeah, the universal church is a function of God's manifold wisdom. He's saying to this local Ephesian church, you, Ephesian church, God's been thinking about you since before the creation of the world. And he's going to use your local church in the city of Ephesus to reveal the manifold wisdom of God. 
the car guys are thinking the manifold wisdom of God. Is that the intake manifold or the uh, exhaust manifold? I need to know which manifold it is. That's not what he means. Some of your translations might say multifaceted. So the wisdom of God is not one-dimensional, two-dimensional. If you could hold the wisdom of God in your hand, you'd hold it. You go, oh, okay, and you turn it. Oh, I didn't see that coming. And you could turn it for eternity, and you'd never see all the facets of it. Because it's the wisdom of God. And what he's saying is, I want to make known the multifaceted wisdom of God through the local church. The local body of believers who get together and say, we love Jesus and we want our community to know Jesus is worth loving because he loves you back. He says, I am going to, through the church, uh, make known the manifold wisdom of God. Where is he going to make this wisdom known? Look with me. This will blow your mind. Or you don't believe it. It's one of the two. Those are the two options on this one. Blow your mind or you don't believe it. He is going to make known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. So what God is saying is this. I want the local body of believers to reveal my manifest wisdom, the multifaceted wisdom, to angels. Both angels who have rebelled against God, fallen angels, and angels who haven't. I want them to look at the local body of believers and go, what? What are you thinking, God? This is crazy. You're amazing. This is what you got to think about. I get kind of excited about this. I don't know. Think about an angel in his life. Angels aren't eternity, or eternal. They had a beginning. God created them at some point. So here's angel. Let's call him Bob. It's got to be an angel, Bob. He has spent his entire existence in the presence of God and other angels. That's pretty cool. Just keep in mind, people in the Bible would see one angel, they would immediately abandon God and try and worship the angel. Like, who would do that? The apostle John at the end of his life in the book of Revelation, you say, he didn't do that. No, he did it twice. One book. Angels are awesome. Angels have been seeing things, you and I, if we saw them, we would no longer want to be on planet Earth. We'd say, I want to go there. Right now, what about your family? Who cares? This is what angels spend their, their ordinary days doing. And God says, hey guys, I want to show you something. I want to show you the multifaceted nature of my wisdom. And so what in the world could God possibly do to blow the minds of angels? Local church. He says, I want, look at what's happening in Ephesus. Look at what is happening in Medford. Look at what's happening not only at all the many churches in Medford, but guys, you've got to check this. Look what's happening at First Baptist Church of Medford. And the angels are going, dude, we thought you were awesome. Look at what you're doing. You're out of control. I, mean, I don't think angels talk that way, but you know what I mean. He's making known the greatest mystery, the greatest wisdom to the most difficult to impress creatures who have ever lived, and he's doing it in this church right now in this moment. And he said, well, we're not that impressive. Uh, he's talking about him, not us. He's an impressive God. He can be impressive even with the unimpressive. In fact, that's his specialty. If we remember back to Paul. Did he have purpose because he was awesome? He had purpose because he received the grace of God in his unawesomeness. 
How do we know if something is important? How do we know if something is big? How do we know if something is powerful? I would suggest it's all those things if angels are impressed, and they are, because that's how good God is. His glorious wisdom is being made known in his body of Christ, even local churches like ours. Anything you have ever dreamed of that might be possible, that might make you feel important, to make you think you're a part of something important, everything that you could possibly imagine would be amazing, this is greater, is what Paul is saying. We don't see it. This is occurring in the unseen world, the invisible world. This is an act of faith, we're saying. Uh, something is going on here that you and I don't see. But Paul says, I believe it as much as I believe the air I'm breathing. There has nothing been more uh, done on planet Earth that reveals more of God's wisdom than God taking a bunch of local people and doing a work of the gospel in them. It amazes even those such as the angels. Take heart. God's purpose is the greatest. But how is this even possible? That, you might be asking that question. Okay, I read the Bible. I see what you're saying, Greg. Can't argue with the Bible. You can try. Uh, can't argue with it. So how is this even uh, possible that God could give grace and that he could somehow work in the lowness of uh, my own heart or the lowness and brokenness of a body of believers like ours uh, to make it the most important thing that's ever happened? Well, let's see. Look at this. Verses 11 and 12. And 13. God's purpose, I should say this, take heart because God's purpose is in Christ. Let's read verse 11 and 12 again if you don't mind. All of this was according to the eternal purpose that he, God, has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So Christ is the one who makes the broken whole. Christ is the one who makes the small big. Christ is the one who takes that which is invisible and will one day make it visible and glorious. We take heart because Christ uh, is the one who brings to fulfillment all the purposes of God. Look at it again. This is according to his eternal purpose he has realized in Christ. So through all of eternity, God has been planning to send Jesus to die for sinners. Jesus comes and he becomes a man. He lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross, shedding his blood for us. He takes on himself the punishment for every sin we have ever done. And three days later, he destroys death, defeats sin, raises from the dead. So in Christ, all of God's eternal plans are completely fulfilled. In Christ, everything God has been planning for all of time is completely finished, completely uh, done. How do we participate in that? Look with me at Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts 20, verse 28. Incidentally, Paul here in Acts 20, 28 is the final time he's going to talk with some of the people from the church in Ephesus. He's been traveling down the coast. He takes a special trip to meet with some of the people from the church of Ephesus. And this verse is a part of that conversation he was having with some of the folks from that church. He was talking specifically with some of the pastors and leaders and elders of the church, but the truth of this passage applies really to every single one of us. So this is what Paul said to this same church uh, earlier in his life, Acts 20, verse 28. 
pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, that is the church, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Pay careful attention to the body of Christ. Christ has purchased, redeemed, brought together the body of Christ, and the price was the shedding of his blood. And Paul puts that in the phrase as making a purchase. He's saying the price of bringing the body of Christ to himself was his own blood. So Jesus, in fulfilling the eternal purpose that God has been putting in place in all of time, is saying, I'm doing that on purpose to draw people to myself, the body of Christ. Elsewhere in the Bible, the body of Christ is referred to as the bride of Christ. He, in loving and affectionate ways, wants to draw his people into his his ability to fulfill God's purpose. We have to understand what Jesus is saying here is Jesus didn't die on the cross and say, okay, I got it, guys, come on, I fulfilled the purpose. He's saying, no, I want you to be in me, a part of me, and with me fulfill God's purpose. He's saying, in in trusting what I did for you, I want you to participate with me in my death and resurrection. I want you to participate with me in displaying to the to the, to the glorious heavenly places that uh, God is wise to redeem sinners. I want you to be fulfillers of God's purpose with me. We're not merely following along with Jesus, of course we are, but we're work, walking with him and fulfilling the purposes of Christ. The reason the, the purpose of God is so compelling is it's everything Christ is doing, and he's calling us to join him in doing it with him. Look over at Ephesians chapter 2, if you will. I'm going to read 10 verses. I know it's hard to sometimes pay attention when people are reading 10 verses. It's a lot, but try and stick with me. I couldn't figure out a way of reading less. Just be thankful I didn't decide. Let's just read the whole book of Ephesians so we get it in context. We didn't, we're not going to do that. Ephesians 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Many of these verses are very familiar but it's Paul's way of summing up everything Jesus has done to fulfill God's purpose. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, with Jesus, and seated us, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. That way it's not a result of your work, so that none of you can boast. For we are his workmanship, created 
in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have been saved into Christ, raised into Christ, now walk in Christ that we might fulfill our purpose in Christ. We find our purpose when we find Christ, and there is no greater purpose. We find our purpose not merely when we discover this one Jesus, it's when by faith we find ourselves in Christ. The Bible is telling us in Christ we are as significant and important as Christ. By faith, when we receive the washing of a newness of life through the blood of Christ, we now are in Christ, and we are as significant and important in Christ as Christ. It's bothering some of you. You're like, I don't, I don't buy it. Jesus is more important. We're in him. When God sees us, he sees Christ. With confidence and boldness, we walk into God's presence and you say what when you walk into prayer? What's the first thing you do when you decide to pray? Oh, man, God, I better get some things taken care of so that you'll hear the stuff I want later. I know you would never say, yes, you would. Okay, here's God. Here's the list of PG sins I'm willing to confess so that maybe you might give me the stuff I'm looking to get from you. Paul frames prayer in a little different way. What does he say? I'm going to rephrase Paul's words. We walk into the throne room of God and say, in Christ, I have fulfilled your eternal plan. You say, well, that seems a little brash. Paul calls that bold. Who told you you couldn't walk into God's presence and say, fulfiller in his house, that means house, sorry, try gospel fulfiller is here. And we're not, I'm not saying we should be arrogant or disrespectful, that's not my point. The point is, usually we walk into God's presence with our tail between our legs, and so somehow we must atone for how bad we've been this week. And Paul is reframing these. He says, no, you're in Christ. In Christ, you are a fulfiller of God's eternal purpose. Do you think God looks forward to seeing his kids who have fulfilled his eternal purpose? Yes. Do you think he gets excited to see his kids who have fulfilled his eternal purpose, even though, even though they're so busted up, it's hard to believe they could do it? Yes, I can't explain it. That's just how he is. We call that multifaceted wisdom. We say, why is God like that? Don't argue with it. It's awesome. We walk into his presence. Fulfilled it today. You say, well, I'm not sure if you did. I know I didn't, but Christ did, so we're still good. Do you think now in the midst of that you have the boldness to really own your brokenness with God? Of course, because now you have no worries. I'm a fulfiller. I'm in Christ. In Christ, we go to the most important place, the presence of God. In Christ, we have the most important purpose, being a part of God's eternal, redemptive purpose in creation. In Christ, we fulfill God's most important mission, proclaiming good news to people who need to hear it. In Christ, not only do we participate in the most important mission and the most important purpose, in Christ it's fulfilled in us. There has never been a day in your entire life with Christ that the end of one day could be described as a failure. If it was, then Christ failed. In Christ, you cannot be a failure. 
you can be redeemed in your brokenness. But it is not possible for Christ to fail. The flip side of this is this great mission, this great purpose is in this life with these eyes and these bodies unseen. The glories of it we don't see. This purpose, this life is mundane. As it turns out, to love your spouse as Christ loves the church is not writing articles about it. It's just getting up and making breakfast for another day and another day and another day. 300 days go by of that, and guess what? That's just one year. And we say, well, this is not a big deal. What are you talking about? Expressing your love to your spouse the way Christ loved his church, you don't think that's a big deal? You don't think angels are having their minds blown over the fact that you love your, your spouse the way Christ loved his church? No, they're going, this is crazy. Look at he's acting just like Jesus to his wife. That's unbelievable. Do you know what he was like before? Only moderately worse, but still, it's getting better. I mean, okay. This purpose is fulfilled and it's unseen. This glory is, in this life, unseen. It's, it's mundane. It's, if we can even say, it's small. It's, it can seem little. It can seem like not a big deal. And there are unseen places that it's the most big deal. And we have to understand this is what God's purpose and his glory is, in, even in us. Three things to take away from this for you. Let me just review the reasons we had this. Take, take heart. God gives purpose. Take heart. God's purpose is the greatest. And take heart. God's purpose is in Christ. First, dream big. And again, let's reframe this in the Bible. Dream big. That means what would it look like if my life, my work, my family, my hobbies were built into the greatest purpose of all time? What would my relationship with my boss look like if I said, I'm gonna make, I want my work to have greater purpose than punch in, punch out, have a couple of bucks? What does it look like to walk into the office and say, okay, I want to be Jesus in this place. How hard do I work if my boss isn't my boss, it's Jesus? What does my leisure time look like? How do I take the things that I enjoy and worship God in them? How do I take the, my family and, and, and not merely make it my family, but say this is my family which is built into the purposes of Christ? You say, well, you don't know my family. It's kind of busted up. What did we mention earlier about grace? Oh, man, then you're set up because that's where grace flourishes the most. You should feel terrible for those people with the perfect marriages. Grace is never going to take root there. It just falters. You should pray for them, in fact. Pray their marriage falls apart. No, that's terrible. That's not what I mean. How about this? Pray they'd finally realize their marriage fell apart a long time ago, and the act is getting old. See, grace flourishes in that brokenness. You know, God can never use a marriage like mine. No, those people that you've got to frame someday are a marriage with a buddy like theirs, God can't use a marriage like theirs because they have no need they need is grace. You cry yourself to sleep at night saying, God, I need your grace. Understand, his grace flourishes in that moment. He is honored and lifted up, and the angels are going, this is amazing. Dream big. What would my life look like? Not if the big, 
the big dreams I have, but what if I dream bigger than that into the eternal purposes of God? Okay, second thing. Don't miss out. I'm going to say this, and it's going to offend a couple of you, probably me too. The biggest thing God has going right now is boring local church. And I don't mean boring Oregon. I mean, they probably have a good church there too. The biggest thing God has got going in the universe is a bunch of people living in a city saying, we love Jesus. And you say, well, what have we got to do to jive things up, get things going? I don't know, maybe Jesus shows up, which he does every Sunday. The biggest thing going, and what, I'm just going to challenge you, but don't miss out. Don't get to the other side when the invisible is now visible and say, oh, man, I was right on the cusp and and I missed out on the biggest thing God has been doing for all of eternity, drawing people himself into the local church. Finally, take heart. I think this is probably applies to every single one of us in some area of our, of our lives. Take heart. The difficulty, the suffering, the unseen, the devotion you're extending to others in Christ that no one knows about, no one will ever know about, the battles in your heart and mind for uh, obedience to God that is a struggle and a fight, but you're staying in the fight that nobody knows about. It's your glory. Look at the end of verse 13 of Ephesians 3. I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. It is for your glory. Most of us, if we were to write this, we'd say we, it's for God's glory because that feels religious. Paul's saying, no, no, no. Don't be bashful. We're in Christ. Being a part of the great redemptive work of God in Christ is, brings great glory to Christ, but we're in Christ. So what does that mean? It's also for our glory. Do you imagine yourself, the Super Bowl, throwing the touchdown pass? crowd goes wild that's built into you you're supposed to want that the problem is we busted it all up and decided to get that without God and God says no I want you to hear the roar of the crowd read Hebrews chapter 12 I'm not going to read it don't have time I want you to hear the roar of the cloud and lift your hands up because when you lift your hands up in glory everyone will know it's in Christ but that's built into our hearts. Take heart. Your suffering, the unseen, the mundane, boring devotion you have to God, his people, and the people in your life is for your glory. And one day the curtain will be pulled back and you'll say, oh my goodness, you overdid it, God. I was hoping for a little glory. This is a little nuts. Take heart. Dream big. Don't miss out. Take heart.